Morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Remedy, if you don't know me. Um, so today, we're actually going to read um, from 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 through 5. 1 Peter 5, chapter 1 through 5. And just a reminder as you're flipping, um, because we don't have screens, uh, the lyrics for the worship um, songs that we sing later are on remedychurch.org slash worship. So 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are glorious. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our lives our words, our affections, our thoughts. You're worthy of every aspect of us. We are thankful that you have revealed to us the glory, your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask today as we look at your words to us uh, that you would show us again, that you would have grace upon us, that you would have mercy upon us, who we are, and help us to see who you declare us to be in Christ. Lord, I pray specifically for just the um, office of elder, the elders here, the pastors here. I pray that you would guide us, that you would give us wisdom, that you would um, give us gentleness, and yet you would also give us a fierce gentleness um, as we shepherd the people that gather here today. Lord, we ask that you would continue, um, continue to just build us and um, cause us to mature up into the head who is Jesus, and that our witness as a church, as individuals and as a gathered church, our witness would be um, effective. It would be uh, a, a powerful witness that people who either observe or as we go out and we scatter our neighbors and our coworkers and people that we rub shoulders with, that they would be able to see the love and humility of Jesus Christ Um, in the way that we walk, in the way that we talk. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So, in the the past kind of couple of sermons, last two weeks, we've talked about Remedy being a sending church and Remedy being a church-planting church, kind of as a part of our emphasis on going, and then obviously in obedience to the, the Great Commission, which tells us to go in Matthew 28. These kind of next two sermons are serving two purposes. Uh, One, they're they're concluding our our vision section on going. But in another way, they're also kind of opening up our next section of gathering. Um, So they're concluding and they're kind of opening up. Over the next two weeks, we'll be seeing what Scripture has to say 
about biblical church leadership, uh, which is seen in two offices, the office of elders or pastors. Whenever I say elders or whenever I say pastors, synonymous term, same thing. Um, and then the second office, which is the office of deacons, which is synonymous with servant or even waiters. Um, they are those who serve the church. They wait upon the church. Um, and so it's going to conclude our going section because to be a sending church and a church planting church, to be a going church, we need to be a stable and a healthy church. And we must kind of have our house in order before we go out to build more houses is another way of saying that. Um, part of what it means to be a healthy church is to have healthy biblical leadership. So we saw in the past two weeks, both uh, Pastor David and Pastor Scott, um, David preached on it and Scott referenced it. But in Acts 13, we saw the church leadership along with church members sending out Paul and Barnabas. Both elements were um, there in that church. A going church is a biblically led church. Um, it begins gathering, the gathering section, because the elders kind of preside over the church gathering. They're the, the worship leaders of the church gathering. So a going church is a biblically led church, and a gathering church is a biblically led church. So we're going to look at what 1 Peter 5 says about that, and what Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has to say about the office of elder. And then next week, we'll look particularly at the office of deacons. And so Peter, the letter itself, he's writing to a persecuted spread out church. It's spread out over five provinces in Rome. Likely the persecution's coming under the emperor Nero, but there's some other potential things. Uh, let's just say like he turned them into street lights and all other kinds of things um, through his persecution. And so Peter's insights, his commands, and his points apply to churches in any season, but even particular to churches that are in a season of suffering and persecution. Um, and so biblical church leadership is especially needed during persecution, but it's also required in times of false teaching, times of prosperity, and really any time or season that we can find in uh, the Bible. And so in these short five verses, Peter's going to tell us quite a, a bit about the office of pastors and how members should likewise respond to biblical leadership. And Peter's going to touch on a couple of things. He's going to touch on plurality and equality within uh, the pastors, and that's coming from really verses 1 and 5. He's going to talk about what pastoring is and what pastoring is not, what good pastoring is and what bad pastoring uh, looks like, and that's really primarily verses 2 and 3. He's going to beckon all of us, both elders and members, to keep our eyes upon Christ, who himself is the chief, kind of turn to all who get pastor, and that's verse 4. And then he's finally going to kind of turn to all who gather with the church, not just the elders, but all who gather with the church. And he's going to say, be clothed with humility. And that's verse 5. So before we start looking at the text, I want everyone to know some things uh, in this regard. If you look at verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you. He literally turns in his letter to directly the elders that are among the people he's writing to. And he specifically talks to the elders. And so what I am saying today, I am specifically saying to the elders. But note also that he writes to the spread out churches. And as he's talking directly to the elders, it's included in a letter that everyone 
would be reading. So the things that I say are specifically to the elders, but they also are meant to be heard by the members of the church of Jesus. Um, So everyone else, I want you to listen to these things too, because obviously Peter includes it in his letter, which is written to the churches. So let's look at our first point. It's not going to be up on the screen, so I'm going to repeat it seven times. Now I'm going to repeat it a couple times so you can write it down. But the first point is, why plurality and what is it? Why plurality and what is it? That's uh, the first point. Why plurality and what is it? That was four times. I got three more. Why plurality and what is it? Um, So our first point from the text might not seem obvious uh, because Peter seems to imply it more than he explicitly makes it known. Uh, but, in fact, it is a point that is taught throughout the entirety of the New Testament, and it is so blatantly taught in the New Testament that it's easy for a generation to assume it, which then the next generation tends to lose it. It's so clearly taught that sometimes I think we don't look at it in particular, and so it's easy to lose it. Today it's lost uh, by many, and it, it, you know I gave an example of like for instance the early church, particularly in the first 200 years of the church, assumed scripture was straight from God, and so when they quoted scripture they didn't say oh and it's here's the doctrine of inspiration they just quoted scripture as if it was from God, but then you have the problem later when people start assuming that it's from God and they don't teach that it's from God that people then lose that idea. And so we can kind of see that today. So that's an example of what I mean by that. When you assume, you can kind of lose. Um, So the Bible teaches that there should be a plurality of elders and that the elders are equal in authority with one another. And we're going to see both points here. So this is kind of a sub-point to why plurality and what is it. Healthy churches eventually have a plurality of elders. So that's our kind of first sub-point within this section. Healthy churches eventually have a plurality of elders. And so this is going to come to us from verse 5. We can see it also a little bit in verse 1. I exhort the elders, plural, among you. The reason I didn't pin it on that one is because, again, Peter's talking to a spread out church. There's at least five different provinces of churches that Peter's writing to. And so he could just be saying the elders in the sense that there's an elder for each of the spread out churches It's not necessarily plural, but look at verse 5. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Here he says that there's a plural number of elders for the younger, a little too weak to hang the entire definition and doctrine of plurality of elders. There's a lot of other things in the New Testament. So Alexander Strzok uh, wrote a book called Biblical Eldership. It's actually a book that we've used, I think, for the entirety of um, Remedy's history for elder candidate training. Um, And in it, he lists off several examples of plurality. So I'm going to go through them. The first one is the apostolic pattern of Jesus selecting 12 and not one. The second is uh, in Acts 15, when the Church of Jerusalem comes together to deliberate over doctrinal uh, controversy, the elders, plural, of the Church of Jerusalem are invited with the 12 apostles to actually discuss it. Um, Another example is in James 5.14. James instructs the sick believer to call for the elders. In verse 15, it actually says elders in plural and then church in singular. Um, Another example 
is from, at the end of Paul's first missionary journey, he appointed a council of elders for each of the newly founded churches. This is Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular, it's Acts 14, 23. When leaving Ephesus for the final time, Paul summons the elders of the church in Acts 20. Um, another example, Paul greeted the Philippians, the church, and he greeted the overseers, the elders, and the deacons. And then uh, one final example, when writing to the churches scattered throughout the five Roman provinces, Peter exhorted the elders to pastor the singular flock. And so that's from 1 Peter 5, our text today. So there's others that are listed off. I listed a, a ton, just so you can see that there is a ton of um, evidence a guy named Bruce uh, Stabbert, when kind of looking at each passage that has uh, where the New Testament addresses local church leadership, this is kind of his conclusion. He says, of the 18 passages which speak of church leadership, 15 of them are plural. Of these 15, seven of them most definitely speak of a single congregation. In all these passages, there's not one passage which describes a church being governed by one pastor only. So, end quote. So, the, the bottom line is the New Testament is overwhelmingly clear. Singular congregations should be shepherded by multiple pastors. Um, however, uh, that's the foundation of leadership. The Bible leaves to wisdom how pastors might organize themselves inwardly and how they might organize how they are to lead the church as a group. That's left to wisdom. But what's not left to wisdom is that there should be a plurality. Now, in this subpoint, I said eventually, and that's a key word. The reason I put eventually have a plurality is that you can have a church without elders. You can have a church without elders. Paul planted churches that were elderless, and then over a couple of years, he then went back and put plurality of elders in those churches. And so there might be a season where you might see a planted church that doesn't have elders, and then it might start with maybe even a singular elder, but eventually, as it grows and matures, it will go to a plurality of elders. So that's what I meant by eventually. So the second kind of sub-point under plurality is this. The pastors at Remedy are to be fellow pastors. They're to be fellow elders. So we talked about plural and at Remedy, our fellow pastors. Look at verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. There's, there's so much crammed into that one verse, um, but we're going to focus just particularly on one phrase, fellow elder. Um, John Calvin is really helpful here in his commentary when he talks about this. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's helpful. He writes this, By this title, fellow elder, by this title, Peter secured for himself more authority as though he had said that he had the right to admonish pastors because he was one of themselves. For there ought to be mutual liberty between colleagues, but if he had the right of primacy leading them, he would have claimed it, and this would have been most suitable on the present occasion. But though he was an apostle, he yet knew that authority was by no means delegated to him over his colleagues, but that on the contrary, he was joined with the rest in the participation of the same 
off. So the bottom line is, Paul, Peter looks out to these other elders and doesn't lord it over them or even command them to do something based on his authority, but rather as a fellow elder speaks to them. Um, and I think that's important. So he uses fellow elder to secure the right to admonish other elders. But what's interesting is he doesn't use apostolic authority to demand them to do something. Rather, he understood himself to be, again, a fellow elder. He had every right to speak to them, but no right to demand of them as a pastor. He was a pastor just like them. If this is how elders ought act toward each other outside of local congregations, how much more so elders within the same local congregation um, ought to act toward one another. So though the Bible leaves a lot to the internal organizing of the eldership up to wisdom, it doesn't leave all up to wisdom. We have plurality and we have equality within uh, the, the leadership. So however the plurality of elders is organized, they ought to be organized in a way that acknowledges that each pastor has equal authority for shepherding the people at Remedy Church. So I can say before you, kind of as a witness to the inner workings, the secret councils of the elders, um, that this is true. This is true of Remedy, um, that we have an equal uh, voice in the process, and obviously we have a plural number. Um, so we're organized in such a way so as to give uh, one another the proper authority due to the office. And as a part of our vision, we continuously seek to refine both the pathway to becoming an elder, but also how the plurality op operates and shepherds the Church of Jesus Christ. So I wanted to just give a little insight as to how the five elders at Remedy currently operate. Uh, so we have five pastors. We share the preaching load um, pretty evenly, and that's a matter of wisdom for the season that we are currently in. Um, it's not a command from Scripture that each pastor preaches absolutely evenly. It's just how we have set up currently for the current season. We've divided ourselves into five teams, and there's two pastors on each team. One of them's a lead, and one of them's kind of an assistant. Now, you might be like, well, then do we have ten? Each pastor serves on two different teams. One, he's a lead, and one, he's an assistant. So there's five different teams. There's a teaching team, a gathering team, a going team, a flock care team, that's a mouthful, um, and an administrative, or administrative team. Each of those teams, again, has a lead or a helper, and each team has specific responsibilities uh, at different angles of shepherding um, you guys at Remedy. And as we work in pairs and create proposals to help shepherd the church, those proposals then go before the entire council of elders to be voted on before they actually go into practice. And so we actually meet as a council, all five of us together, currently once every two weeks or so. And in those meetings, right, we have an agenda. We begin them by praying for members by name um, and their children. Uh, we also go through the agenda, which includes reports from the five teams, any proposals that are made, any theological discussions that are needed, and then any member care situations that are also needed. And we, so we talk through those things. And again, most of this organization, the wisdom that we, we kind of see in the, in the way that we organize, what's not left to us from, to just merely wisdom is that we ought to have a plural number of pastors each, and that each pastor is equal because they each hold the same office. Each pastor is a fellow pastor. So what is also not left to wisdom is the duty of pastors. 
what pastors are supposed to do. And this is shown to us in verses, kind of the end of verse 1 all the way through verse 3. And this is our second point. What good pastoring is and what it is not. What good pastoring should look like and what it should not look like. Um, And this, again, comes from kind of the end of verse 1 all the way through verse 3. I'm going to read 1 through 2, actually. Uh, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Grammar is important. Raise your hand if you love grammar. Oh, wow, that's actually a lot more than I thought. (laughs) I thought we were math people. Um, So God cannot be put into a box, but he did put himself into a library of books. Um, And it's important to understand the meaning of the Bible along with the form of the Bible is important. God communicates his truth through grammatical structures that we sometimes call sentences, That God would do this communicates to us that he loves us, he's humble, he's a speaking God. He doesn't leave us to guess at who he is. He doesn't leave us to just grope around in the dark looking for him. Um, Karen Jobes, uh, a professor at Wheaton College, pointed out something helpful to me in her commentary um, on 1 Peter. Uh, Something that very much confused me was uh, this phrase, a fellow elder, has a definite article before it in Greek. Definite article just means the. And then, yeah, it's translated a fellow elder. And so I was a little bit confused. What's the point of the the if it's a? And and she actually has a really helpful thing here. Um, Apparently, when there's a definite article, sorry, a definite article followed by a prefixed word. So the prefixed word is fellow elder. It's sim followed by the word for elder, presbytos. So when there's a definite article followed by a prefixed word, with the conjunction and, the prefix applies to the latter word or words as well. So that's really interesting here because when we look at this text, the fellow should be attached to elder, witness, and partaker. So verse 1 reads like this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a fellow partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, when I first read this verse, I was like, oh, Peter's talking about, you know, fellow elder, I got that one. But then I thought, he's talking about, like, how he literally saw Jesus, the sufferings of Christ, his crucifixion. That's probably what he's talking about. And then, like, the glory that's going to be revealed, maybe he's talking about how he witnessed the transfiguration. But this blew me away that he then attaches fellow to all of those terms. And so it couldn't be about that because these elders that are spread out all throughout Rome were not witnesses of those things, and yet he says to them, they are. And so this explains why Peter makes no appeal to really his apostolic authority, because he's actually giving some of that over to the elders, the witness of Christ. Elders are to continue testifying and guarding the testimony of the church about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're to reveal that we all participate in by faith in Christ. That, that, that's what the elders are doing. The apostolic authority here seems kind of split in two. We've got the apostolic teaching, which we are to obey. Well, that's the New Testament. They recorded their words down. Elders do not get to tell you what to obey unless they root it in the apostolic authority of the New Testament and the Old um, Testament, right? 
They don't get, we don't get to just be like, you need to obey this. Go jump off this uh, bridge, right? We don't get to say things like that because it's not rooted in apostolic teaching. But one thing that is passed down to the elders through the apostles is the apostolic witness of the sufferings of Christ and the participation in the glory of, that is to be revealed. And so we are a lampstand as a church. Um, we are a witness of the sufferings and glory of Christ, and elders oversee that witness to make sure it remains effective. Uh, so this passing on of authority from Pat Peter to elders is further cemented by his exhortation. Look at the words, shepherd the flock of God. This command absolutely crushed me when I realized where it was coming from. Peter is quoting the Lord Jesus Christ from John 21, verse 16, when it says this, Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, or sorry, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And the word tend there is shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God. So Peter, in John 21, Jesus asks him three separate times, do you love me, right? Oh, that was Siri? <laughs> um, so Peter, Peter asks him three separate times, do you love me? And each time he gives a different variation of the same thing. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And so why did Jesus restore him three times? Because Peter denied Jesus three times before his death. And the ultimate pastor comes to Peter and he restores him three times, and commissions him to be a pastor after his own example, to shepherd the flock, to feed the flock. And so Peter roots pastoring in the gentleness, grace, mercy, and love of Christ. Peter denied him three times, and Jesus restored him three times. And now Peter turns to these very elders who are now tempted to go into hiding because of the Nero persecutions, and he says to them, Tend the sheep, shepherd the flock. He gives them the same admonition that Jesus gave to him. And they know Peter's story. They know that when Peter says that, uh, he says it as one who ran from Christ and failed Christ. And he says it as one who knows the love of the Savior. And that Jesus is in the business of restoring broken people, no matter where they're at. So now G uh, Peter gives three ways to, to not pastor and three ways to pastor I don't know if he's continuing his theme of three. That might be me just reading into it. So this first uh, kind of way of not pastoring, he says, not under compulsion, but willingly. So we're to pastor in a way, not under compulsion, but willingly. And this is coming from the first part of verse two. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So pastors... At the root, they exercise oversight, right? And the word for oversight is actually the word that can be translated as bishop. They over, they're overseers. There's actually three terms that are used of pastors in the New Testament that are kind of simultaneous terms. The most uh, rare one is the word shepherd. Um, the most common one is the word presbyteros, which just means elder. And then the, uh, the next most common is the word for bishop which means overseer. When you see those terms, usually 
they're synonymous with each other and talking about the office of elder. So here he says, uh, oversee, um, exercise oversight. Um, and in the word overseer, we get a picture of the root of what a pastor is. He's one who oversees the church. He helps her to grow in her witness by teaching for growth and maturity amongst the members, as Scott read from Ephesians uh, this morning, uh, that we might grow up into the head who is Christ. But in stating the root of pastoring being overseeing or keeping watch over the people in the doctrine of the church, Peter also shows negative motivations. Actually, finally, he gives a kind of positive and negative style of leadership, if you want to call it style. So the first one is not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So not under compulsion is used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which I think is a helpful to help us understand here that Paul uses it of giving. And so we're not to give out of compulsion, but willingly. Like Paul uses that word compulsion. And what he means there is begrudgingly. Like we shouldn't give because some guy up at the front says give. And then we go, ah, oh, okay, I guess I'll give. That shouldn't be our like giving motivation. And in the same way, elders don't pastor begrudgingly. They shouldn't pastor because uh, they think it's right or they feel they ought to or that it's God's call or if they don't, then who will? But rather, they should do it because they want to. And so the pastoral calling really has three parts, right? He's called from the congregation. He's called because he's qualified. But it's a, a kind of third part, which is important, he's called because he wants to be a pastor. Now, a lot of times we... You know, we just have that third part, and that's all we care about. Oh, I want to be a pastor, so I'm going to be a pastor. You need all three parts. But we shouldn't, you shouldn't be a pastor if you don't want to be a pastor, if you're not willingly giving yourself uh, to the work. And so Peter gets to that here. Note that he ends with this phrase, as God would have you. In Greek, it's um, according to God. And this could mean, as the ESV translated, as God would have you. It also could mean God is your example. Shepherd like this, according to the way God would himself. And I think actually that's probably what Peter has in mind, that God himself provides an example of exercising oversight, not begrudgingly, but willingly. Again, kind of rooting pastoring into the sweet, warm mercy and love of God seen through Jesus, going back to what he just said. Jesus restored Peter willingly, not begrudgingly. He restored Peter because he longed to see Peter restored. Pastors, we ought to long to see God's sheep shepherded, and we ought to long to be a part of that. The second motivation, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. This comes from the second part of verse 2. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain is from the Greek word greed. Um, and so pastors can be uh, paid, and thus pastors can be greedy for money, but that's not all that's um, in, in sight here, right? Uh, and let me do a sidetrack here, because I think this is helpful too, so you can understand some things about the pastors at Remedy. In 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 14, Paul lays out very clearly that it is the right of any minister of the gospel, including pastors, uh, to be paid, that they can have their livelihood taken care of by the church, that it's a right. Now, Paul also, in that very same um, passage, says, and by the way, we don't exercise that right. 
And so pastors have the right to be paid, but they also have the right to say, we are, we're going to freely give. We're going to freely serve um, the church of Jesus. Right now, four of our five pastors uh, actually do not take advantage of that right. I think I'm the only paid pastor at Remedy. I'm paid for five hours. And so that, that's currently how the plurality is operating. We could be paid, but we choose payment. And so Peter here is addressing what can come along the lines of being a paid pastor, greed for more money. Um, there's a, a funny Instagram page if you're into that thing, which I'm not. Um, it's called Preachers and Sneakers. We have talked about this in our community group at one point, but basically they take pictures of preachers in awesome drip, as the kids say. Um, they have these awesome $10,000 shoes, and they take a picture, and they're like, that's a $10,000 shoe right there. And Again, that doesn't mean anything, but the point here is that we are men. We can also be greedy men, and Peter is saying pastors must not be for greedy gain. Now, it can also refer to more than just money, so what it really comes down to is, are they serving for the glory of man, shameful gain, or are they serving for the glory of God? They're eager to do the work God has set before them. It can be the pride of being front and center. It can be the love of hearing your own voice and having others to hear it too. It can be the compliments and the good jobs thrown your way by the congregation. Again, it can be the glory of man or it can be the glory of God. And Peter commands pastors to not pastor for shameful gain, but rather eagerly. And this word eager is interesting It's two words, before and passion, or before wrath, before fierce. And so it's this idea that when when it says eagerly, it's saying that they're passionate to do good for the church. They're eager to do good, which is why they say eager. Look at the third one. This is no longer a motivation. This is now shifting into the way leadership actually acts towards the flock, And Peter writes in verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so we're not to be domineering, but rather we're to be an example. Now Peter, again, as he's done all throughout this, he's referenced Jesus. Jesus has been the guy who commissioned him and restored him like a great shepherd. Jesus is also the kind of example and now here he references Jesus' teaching to the disciples from particularly Mark 10, 42 through 45. It says this, And Jesus called them, the disciples, to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the nations lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be amongst you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give, give his life as a ransom for many. And so pastoring is to be fierce and passionate, but it is to be fiercely gentle and passionately merciful. And it ultimately is an office of service. It's an office of serving. Um, one of the quirky phrases that I've heard for both offices is uh, deacons lead by serving, pastors serve by leading, right? So something like that. Um, So uh, in this case, 
pastors shepherd through their words, but Peter specifically points out that they are to shepherd through their examples. A great pastor named Robert Murray McShane said this, he might be a little bit holiness, but what he means there is that the greatest thing that I can do for my flock as a shepherd is by providing them an example to follow, which is exactly what Peter says here, that they're not to domineer, but rather they're to provide an example and encourage people to follow after their example. Um, so there's one more thing here. Although he points out motivations and he, he points out the difference between domineering and um, giving an example, he points to the chief motivation and the chief example in verse 4, and that is this, that Jesus is our chief pastor. Verse 4, Jesus is our chief pastor. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Um, we're going to look at this verse from a different angle later, but let me point out something important for us to understand here. First, the plurality, the council of elders, have a head pastor. They do not have, uh, sorry, they have a head pastor. They do not have a lead. They, they, they do have a lead, a chief, one whom they take orders from, one whom they are not equal in authority and voice with, one whom they were commissioned as Peter himself was commissioned. And in this case, the text makes it painfully clear. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the chief shepherd of Remedy Church and all churches for that matter. So this is not me saying we need to bash the way culture employs titles. Like lots of churches have senior pastors, head pastors, lead pastors, etc. Like I said, much is left to wisdom how the uh, council of elders organize themselves. So that's not the point that Peter's making in this part. But the only thing, the only time when scripture even seems to approach using a title like head pastor or lead pastor, it's found in this verse when it says Jesus is the chief shepherd. And it's not, uh, it isn't just given to like another pastor, it's given to the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, a chief shepherd is exactly what it sounds like. There's a group of shepherds, and they're all working on shepherding the sheep. And there's a chief that's in charge of them that they report to. And that's what it's saying of Jesus, that the plurality is to report to Jesus Christ for their orders. And then the second thing is that this should, this should give us comfort that uh, myself, Scott, David, John, and even the bearded wonder Joe <laughs> are not ultimately your shepherds. We are not the one in charge of your souls and giving, imparting grace to you. That's rather Jesus Christ. That same Jesus who restored Peter, that same fierce and gentle Jesus, that same perfect and lovely Jesus, that same glorious and gracious Jesus, that same Jesus who died for your sins and resurrected for your justification before God, that same Jesus is our chief shepherd. Again, that Jesus' shepherding appears throughout this entire set of verses we've already demonstrated, but let's do another example. Look again at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then look over at verse, sorry, let me pull it out. Verse, yes, verse 3. Those in your charge, not domineering over those in your charge. That word, those in your charge, 
is the word lot. Lot lies behind that. So when you see lots, it's kind of akin to like a little dice game of chance, you know, almost gambling even. <laughs> and in the, the Old Testament, right, uh, you've got Jonah who's running away from God and all the, the mariners are trying to figure out why is this storm on us and they cast lots and it lands on Jonah. And they're like, you're the reason, right? And then eventually another example of lots being used um, is uh, when replacing Judas amongst the 12. There were two people put forward that had witnessed all the things that the apostles had witnessed of Jesus and they cast lots between them. Um, there's a proverb that says, uh, man casteth the lot, but the Lord causes it to land. And so what's interesting here is that's what's behind this phrase. And what it's literally saying is, shepherd the flock of God that has been allotted to you. And that's important to understand because then you ask, well, who allotted these people to these shepherds? And again, you're, you're brought back to Jesus. That to your left, to your right, behind you and in front of you, the people that are gathered here today that are members of Remedy Church, that is nothing short of, or when people uh, are baptized or people become new believers in Christ or people even leave their faith, we can know that God is still sovereign. He is still the chief shepherd. He is still the first to provide care, the first to provide uh, a reaching out to. He is the primary shepherd um, of Remedy Church. So our last one is actually directed to you, the members, and this comes from verse 5. Humility and teachability make shepherding effective. So humility and teachability make shepherding effective. And Peter writes in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the hunger. Uh, younger here is likely to be taken literally. He's talking to young people. Um, now, what's the definition of that age? Well, you were considered youth up until the age of 30 in Jewish uh, culture. That doesn't necessarily mean that's the hard, fast rule, but younger is talking directly to younger people, essentially. Now, is he saying only younger people have to listen to the elders? Everyone else can just not listen. I don't think that's the point here. I think rather Peter is uh, pointing out something that we all kind of see to be generally true. That we can do some really interesting, dare I say, foolish things in the days of our youth. Um, not that we can't also do them when we're old. Um, but we're tempted to conquer the world in our youth. We're tempted to mistake a critical spirit for wisdom, particularly in our youth. Um, again, not that we don't find these qualities in the old as well, but generally speaking, we do find them in the youth. And Peter here is especially admonishing the youth to entrust themselves to the elders guiding and their leadership. But then Peter turns from the youth and he turns to everybody. He turns from the youth and then he says, all of you. He tells everyone, including the elders, to clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Calvin writes, no dress is more beautiful or more becoming of Christians than when we humbly submit to one another. The idea of mutually submitting to one another as the body of Christ. Humility is a chief trait of God. It's one of the attributes that you oftentimes find missing in attribute books about God. But God himself is 
humble. And he demonstrates this chiefly through sending Jesus, who then becomes a man. The incarnation is the greatest picture of what true humility is. It's not about, oh, I'm acknowledging that I'm a sinner and so I'm lower, because God's not a sinner, and yet Jesus makes himself lower. And there's no highest, higher place you can be than what Jesus was, right? That Jesus is fully God, and then he is fully man. And so he becomes this chief example of humility. And the question is, well, why? Why does Peter focus on humility here at the end of this part of talking about pastoring? He answers, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he's quoting Proverbs 3.34, the Septuagint, the Greek version of it. And so, quite literally, humility, if you will, is the long metal pole that sticks out of the ground during God's lightning storm of grace. Humility is the only conductor of God's grace. Pride is the thick rubber gloves and boots that keep us from being electrocuted by the grace of God. Pride opposes God, and God opposes pride. So, when I say we need humility and teachability and that that makes shepherding effective, why did I say it makes shepherding effective? Well, because again, Peter puts that right at the end of a passage about shepherding. And so what's the point of that? Good pastors seek to expose their people to the grace of God with whatever opportunity they have. Prideful pastors and prideful people, whether they know it or not, work actively against the grace of God. And you and I's humility has everything to do with whether or not the shepherding of remedy is effective, that God imparts grace through it. It has everything to do whether or not God gives grace through the shepherding. So my challenge to us um, as pastors and also as members, are we being humble toward one another? Do we think we have something to learn from fill in the blank that person in the church? Are you being humble towards your pastors? Are you being teachable towards your pastors? Humility means you seek to listen, learn, and obey wherever God's truth and our shepherding collide. And so I want to conclude uh, kind of where Peter began in verse 1, which he talked about this glory that is going to be revealed. And he kind of, again, alludes to it in verse 4, the crowns of unfading glory that will be given to pastors in Revelation 4, 9 through 11, we kind of see what is going to happen to these crowns. It gives us a beautiful heavenly picture of worship involving a plurality of elders who have unfading crowns of glory. And I'm going to be fair here. I don't think the 24 elders at the throne in Revelation 4 are literally 24 elders. Um, I think it's more John's communicating the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles are being represented both the Old Covenant and New Covenant people of God are coming together, a.k.a. the church, the universal church, is worshiping Jesus here. But nonetheless, let's look at this heavenly plurality and what they do. Revelation 4, 9 through 11 says this, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. End quote. 
there's only one thing that Christians will do with heavenly prizes that we win by our good deeds that are grace-born, and that is to cast them at the feet of the chief shepherd who is worthy of everything we can possibly give and more. He is the lamb who had the appearance of being slain, and yet he lives and is seated at the right hand of power and victory. Our chief shepherd himself was a sheep who became a sacrifice on our behalf. On the cross of Jesus Christ, on the cross of Jesus Christ, everything found in the glory that is going to be revealed was bought, was purchased, was paid for. On the cross of Christ, we see the chief shepherd exemplifying what humility is. God became a man, was falsely accused, tried, and pronounced guilty, though he was innocent. He was stripped naked. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was bloodied. He was mocked. He was crowned with a crown of fading, thorny insignificance. He was nailed to a tree held up by his very power as God. All of this that he might suffer on our behalf, that he might take his church into himself and shield them from what their rebellion rightfully deserved. Through his death and his resurrection, he is able to instill within those who are his sweet humility and the full grace of God. Brothers and sisters, Revelation 4 is a picture of what we will be doing in glory. We will all be desperate to find whatever there is of value to throw it at the feet of Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd. Let's pray.